0: Okay, I will try to be loud because of the fans. We are going to be in Colossians 318 to 4, one tonight. So I'm going to going to read that to start us off. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the time that we have had in Paul's letter to the Colossians. We thank you for uh, just some of the mind blowing things that he said, the things that maybe we have not taken to heart, but now have become anchors in our lives. And we pray that in the spirit of having received many great truths over the past several weeks, we pray that we would open our hearts to these. And I pray that you would help me to be clear in my speaking tonight. In Jesus name. Amen. So tonight was going to be the last sermon that we did on Colossians. But I've shortened our focus instead uh, to this passage in 318 to 4. one because I got done with that and then started working on the next and it felt a little bit tacked on. So we're going to finish Colossians 4 next week. And so in this passage that we have, if we think about what came before it, Colossians 3.17, it says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And as I said several weeks ago, when we looked at this verse, Paul doesn't leave anything out when he says this. If you have been raised with Christ, which he says in 3.1, and if Christ in you is the hope of glory, which he said in 127, then you are a new creation. And that is intensely practical. It's not ethereal. It's not something mystical that you can't connect with. It is intensely practical. It keeps your feet on the ground. So if you're a new creation in Christ, that identity governs things like how you work, how you play, how you plan for the present and for the future, how you spend your money and your time, how you choose your words, how you care for your body, how you drive. Think about that for a moment. How would Jesus drive? How would Jesus drive a car? How would his peace and his gentleness and his regard for other people Show up in his driving, and then how should his life show up in your driving? Things to think about, right? Your budgeting, your free time, your digital habits, and so on. How does the life of Christ show up in every nook and cranny of our lives? And here in Colossians three eighteen to four one, Paul takes that reality. And he applies it specifically to the average first century household. In other words, Paul brings the gospel home. And tonight we're talking about being at home in the gospel. Because before we think about taking the gospel anywhere out into the world, which we'll talk about in the next section that will be in next week, we'd better attend to it increasing and bearing fruit within the walls of our own house. Amen? And that should make us pause and it should make us ask, do we really want that? Do we really want that? Do we really want the life of the new age in Christ transforming our homes? Because it's all well and good to affirm certain truths about Jesus that were transferred into his kingdom. Yes. Our sins have been nailed to the cross. Yes. We're raised with him. Yes. But what about when he comes into your household and starts rearranging all the family relationships? What then? Does that get a resounding yes? Well, that's what's happening here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, is bringing the gospel home. And he does so by giving rules to the different people in the household. So why rules? That might be a bit puzzling. Why does Paul give rules? Aren't we now free in Christ? Don't we no longer live to the elemental spirits of the world? Why does Paul give rules? C.S. Lewis said, if the home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules. The alternative to rule is not freedom, but the tyranny of the most selfish member. It turns out that we need these rules to foster kingdom culture in our homes. And when we host home group, I'll often pray that when people come through the door, that they'll perceive peace in the house and an atmosphere of hospitality and welcome, that they'll just be able to sense that when they come in. I'm sure we all know what it's like to enter somebody's house and feel the tension and the strife and the anger that just kind of hangs there like a residue that won't go away. We probably know what that's like to walk into a house and just feel that and how uncomfortable it is. But we also know what it's like to enter into somebody's house and feel like the Trinity has already beaten us there and that there's a riotous party of mutual love already going on before we've even walked in the door. And I'm assuming that you want that for your household. You want your home to be a place of harmony and peace and joy and love. So if that's true, let's look at this section tonight about the household codes that Paul prescribes, not through the eyes of 21st century American culture, but with the very powerful truth that Paul has already proclaimed in this letter still ringing in our ears. Can we do that tonight? All right. So Paul lays out three pairs of relationships in this section. And before going into each one, I want to look at them as a whole. So he lays out wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters. This was the typical first century household. And in each relationship, there's somebody who has power. And then there's somebody who doesn't have power. There's a power imbalance just by the nature of these relationships as they exist. And it might be easier if we think of the ones with power as the strong and those without power as the weak. So you can see on the slide here in this dynamic, the wives would be the weak and the husbands would be the strong. The children would be the weak and the parents would be the strong and slaves would be the weak and masters would be the strong. Now, here's the surprising thing. Paul does not set out to undo this power imbalance. He doesn't seek out to negate it. He doesn't speak out against slavery. He doesn't try to undo these things that are embedded in the culture. Instead, he seeks to Christianize these relationships and this structure. And not just by tacking on in the Lord after each pair, But by making sure that the strong have duties as well as rights, and that the weak have rights instead of just duties. So the strong have duties as well as rights, and the weak have rights as as well as duties. And you have to remember that in the average first century household, everything slanted toward the strong. Everything slanted toward the strong. They had all the power. There were rules for wives and children and slaves but not so much for husbands and parents and masters. You wouldn't have found these household codes in the typical Roman household code. In Christ's kingdom, the roles themselves haven't changed, but how we relate to one another in those roles has changed. A scholar named N.T. Wright says, Paul bases his household list on the law of the new nature, Christ releases you to be truly human and you must now learn to express your true self according to the divine pattern, not in self-assertion, but in self-giving. Not in self-assertion, but in self-giving. Let's keep that before us as we look at each of these three pairs, which we're now going to get into because now you probably think I've been stalling all this whole time. So 318. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So Paul said a lot of mind blowing things in this letter so far. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Christ in you is the mystery that's always been known to God, but now it's been revealed to the saints. And you have died and your life is hidden with God. Those are amazing truths. But in our day, none of those things register on an emotional level, quite like wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And there's a lot of reasons for this. It's certainly out of tune with the world's music, but it's also out of tune for many churches and for many Christians. So I think the first thing to do is to acknowledge that because of the time in which we live, the verse feels awkward. It feels awkward. I affirm it as the word of God and that through Paul, Jesus himself has given this word to us. But I also know that it comes into our ears and it does stuff and it touches on several different emotions. And I don't want to pretend that that doesn't happen. I think the first thing is to acknowledge that it may have an awkward feel for some people. Think back to Leviticus for a moment when we were in Leviticus. You know, one of the laws was that if a woman gave birth to a daughter, she could not come back to the tabernacle. She was impure for 80 days. It was 80 days before she could come back to the tabernacle to worship. We read that, but nobody really gets outraged by it because it no longer applies. We don't follow that rule anymore. In Christ, the rules that kept people separate from God and from each other no longer apply to us. But part of what makes this verse in Colossians and the one that's similar to it in Ephesians 5 awkward is that there's nothing in the Bible that overturns it. Our culture has overturned it, but there's nothing in the Bible that That overturns it. In God's household, the wife is to submit to the husband. It still applies in the same way that the next verse, the children are to obey their parents, applies. Remember that even before sin entered the world, God made the woman as a helper for the man. Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The expectations that wives submit to their husbands is not the problem. The problem is that far too often husbands inside and outside the church have used this verse as an excuse to be tyrants. That's where the problem really lies. That's what's messed this up. Remember what Lewis said earlier. The alternative to rule is not freedom, but the tyranny of the most selfish member. And if the husband is the most selfish member he very well may be a tyrant. And so our secular culture has stepped in and said, you know, the best way would just be to have no rules at all. The husband should have no authority over his wife and the wife should have no authority over her husband. Equality, no rules, no hierarchy. But we should ask, does that really work? Should we take our cues from the culture? Does it really work? Is the world really making a better offer to the church? The divorce rates between 40 and 50 percent. And it's not much better among Christians. Rather than do away with what God set forth in Genesis 2, Paul transposes it into the key of Christ. Into the key of Christ in you. So if I am Kelly in Christ and my wife is Dawn in Christ, then the way that we relate to each other must reflect that reality, must reflect Christ in us. So bringing this verse home, if Dawn is arranging her life so that she's living according to Christ in her and not according to her flesh, then she'll remember that God has charged me, the husband and father, with responsibility for my household. There are responsibilities that I have, and she will come under my vision and decision making for fulfilling those responsibilities. But Paul has something to say to me, too. And that's what you would not find in a first century household code outside of the church. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And so if I'm arranging my life so that I'm living according to Christ in me and not according to my flesh, then not only will I not trample on because Christ is in her. But I will love her and I will take her interests and concerns fully into account and put them ahead of my own whenever I possibly can. And I'll consider her and what will help her flourish far more than I think about myself. That's when I'm at my best and I'm not always at my best. and You're probably not always at your best. But when we're not living according to the flesh and we're living according to Christ in us, those are the things that we will do. Living out this verse about husbands is never about using her to arrange my life to be the way that I want it to be. That she's to be my helper in building my kingdom where I get what I want all the time. That's not what this verse is for. It's not for using her to build my little personal utopia. But that's the temptation for every husband who lets this verse go to their head. That her job is to help me do whatever I want to do. And when that's the dynamic in the home, then the husband is bound to be harsh with his wife. When he's not getting what he thinks that he deserves. But Paul says for husbands to not be harsh because Christ himself was not harsh. Christ was only harsh with those who thought were absolutely convinced that they had it right and they were actually completely wrong. Those were the only people that Christ was harsh with. So that's all I'm going to say about wives and husbands, because even though it has kind of an outsized effect on us, it's one relational pair in this section, which is one section in the whole letter. And really, if first century Colossian Christians knew that this verse was so controversial, they'd probably have been shocked. But they lived in their time and we live in our time. G.K. Chesterton said Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it has been found difficult and left untried. I think we could probably say the same things about these verses about wives and husbands. Amen. Amen. OK, kids, those of you who are in here, you're up next. <clears throat> Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. This is probably the first Bible verse that you ever memorized if you're a kid. Not the Lord's Prayer, not the Ten Commandments, not Psalm 23, but children obey your parents in everything. That was probably the first one that you ever got to memorize. It's somewhat amazing that Paul addresses children at all. If you know anything about first century culture, children were generally overlooked. They were to be seen and not heard. So for Paul to acknowledge children is something pretty amazing. They, too, are little disciples of Jesus with their own duties within the household. Remember how people brought children to Jesus and the disciples dismissed them as unworthy of Jesus's time and attention and Jesus rebuked them. And he said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Children who believe in Jesus are full members of the church. They're not half members of the church. They are full members of the church. And in this one sentence, Paul tells them how they are to live as new creations within the household of God. Obey your parents. So kids, those of you who are here and parents, if you have kids who are down in the Bible class, maybe you can play this section of the recording for them. But kids, when you obey your parents, it does three important things. It shows you it shows that you understand how God has created the family. And by obeying, you humbly take your place in the family, not insisting on your own way. Number two, it gets you ready to obey the Lord. Sometimes your parents want you to do things that are hard or that you don't really want to do well. The father often wants us to do things that are hard and that we may not particularly want to do. But we can't skip them just because they're hard or they're uncomfortable. So when you obey mom and dad, it gets you ready to obey the father. And then finally, when you obey your parents, it pleases the Lord. That's what Paul says. It pleases the Lord. And while we do a lot of things because they're good and they're right or because they help us, what we most want is an atta boy or an atta girl from the Lord Jesus himself. Amen. So, kids, if you believe in Jesus, you are full members of the church. And that's good news. But it also means that we should be able to expect that you will obey your parents. And if we see you not obeying your parents, we will gently and cheerfully correct you in this. Because your household is a part of God's household. And we all live in it together. Amen. Now, as parents, we all smile and nod. But Paul has something to say to us as well. Verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. You know, in the previous verse, Paul said for children to obey their parents. So this verse is not really exclusive to fathers. But because fathers are the head of the household, often they're the ones who enforce the law. So Paul gives a warning here. And we should ask, what kinds of things provoke children and discourage them and create bitterness in them? Well, I gave the kids three things, so I'm going to give us parents three things as well. Number one would be a lack of consistency. If a kid gets away with breaking a rule five times and on the sixth you hammer him because somebody in the church saw them do it and brought it to your attention, he's going to know that you adjust your policies according to who's watching And he's going to know that he can't count on you for fair administration of justice. And that's discouraging. Number two, belittling them or making fun of them. Sometimes fathers can do this in a spirit of trying to toughen or thicken their skin. But, you know, really, the world is coarse enough as it is. And young souls should be able to find comfort in their parents without jokes about their appearance or about their intelligence or about their interests. And I'll say that as somebody who's who's gotten that wrong a time or two. And then finally, hypocrisy. Saying one thing, but doing another. And kids are magnificent about sniffing out hypocrisy. They see it very clearly. So if you get after your teenager about the amount of time they spend on their phone, but you're always glued to it, they notice that. And that opens the door for bitterness. Because the standard that you set for them isn't the standard that you follow for yourself. And hypocrisy provokes and it discourages. And unfortunately, when it comes to our kids, we can very easily react out of our flesh. And not from the Christ in us, new life. And then sometimes we can react harshly to our kids. So when you blow it, when you lose control in how you speak with your kids, Or when you say one thing and you do another, or you interact with them in a way that you know is more about you and less about being a godly parent. Don't be too proud to apologize. We should never be too proud to apologize to our kids. When you mess up, acknowledge it and ask for forgiveness. That's the mature way to relate to one another in the church. And that's the mature way to relate to our kids. I think sometimes we can think that just because we're parents, then everything that we do is right, even if it's wrong. And we know that it's wrong. But because our children are subordinate to us, they just have to understand that it's right. But it's not true. Whatever we do is not automatically right. Because if you act in an unChrist-like way and you know it and they know it, but you don't acknowledge it and ask for forgiveness. What is that teaching them? From here, Paul addresses slaves, which is a better translation really than bondservant. Bondservant's kind of a term that's held over from English translation, slaves is more accurate. And he devotes more time to slaves and their responsibilities in the household than he does to wives, husbands, children, parents, and masters combined. Now, some of us have people who live with us who are not immediate family members. And some of us employ people who work in our house or on the grounds, but they don't live with us. I don't think any of us have any actual live-in employees, at least none that I can think of,
1: who by faith
0: are also brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's what Paul refers to here. So let me give a quick example. Let's say that Adam Schmall, he just graduated from Mars Hill back in the spring. Let's say that I invite Adam to come live in our house and to, uh, we will pay him a wage, we'll put a roof over his head, we will give him food, but in turn, he will cook, he will clean, he will tutor the kids, and he'll take care of the grounds and he'll be on top of the family calendar. Okay, all good. But because we both follow the Lord Jesus, it's not a simple employer-employee relationship. He owes certain things to me as a servant who is my brother in Christ, and I owe certain things to him. So Paul says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So as an employed member of my Christian household, I'm not free to just treat him like property. I owe him justice and fairness because we both serve the Lord Jesus. And I bring this up because sometimes these verses are applied to the typical workplace, how Christians should relate to their employers, In some ways, that's fine, but I don't think it really works because most of us don't live at work, or at least I hope we don't live at work. And people change employers and companies downsize. There's unions and so on. But Paul is envisioning something much closer, something that the gospel touches and changes. And that doesn't really fit with the typical employer-employee relationship. Now, I'm not saying that if you're an employee that you're free then to quiet quit Or participate in bare minimum Monday or any of this other nonsense that goes on. Remember 317, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that includes how we work. We're to do it with excellence and with creativity. And we're to do it not just with skin in the game, but because we serve the Lord Jesus, we're to do it with soul in the game. We're to put our whole effort into it. We're to give the creativity and concern and emotional labor that can only freely come for us from us. Only we know when we're giving that. Only we know when we're giving what we really have deep inside of us. An employer can evaluate whether or not we got the task done. But only we know when we've actually given our best. If we've given that unique creative ability that comes from being made in the image of God. Amen. Nobody can pay you to do that. We have to give that freely of ourselves. So wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, masters, all living together under one roof and the gospel rearranging and transforming each relationship. Now, normally at the end of the sermon, we put forward some application points or some questions, but more than likely you've been making applications the whole time I've been talking And what I want to encourage you to do is to get to the place where you earnestly believe that Christ is in you. If you're already there, great. If you're not, meditate on Colossians and ask the Father to make that real to you that Christ is in you. Because only when you really believe that Christ is in you can you participate in these transforming family relationships. And then open yourself up to what. That looks like relationally in your home. You probably know already what doesn't work in your home. So open yourself up to what that might look like relationally in your home. How might Christ in you bring love and peace and joy and change the atmosphere of your home? Amen. Amen. Let's stand for prayer.